Welcome back to the International Sisters Helpline with me, Jessie from the UK. I'm Lena from Latvia. I'm Jennifer from Germany. And I'm Pauline from France. We are four European sisters on a mission to open up conversations on controversial and taboo topics. Our aim is to make women feel seen and valuable. Each episode we have guests that will help us shine some light on topics not spoken about enough. Hello everyone, I'm Jennifer and I welcome you to this new podcast episode. Today we want to get to know the fashion industry, more specifically the role women play in it. Most of us women love to go shopping and dressing up, right? In this episode, we will put the glamour aside and talk about the mostly unknown side of the fashion industry, the production. There are plenty of problems that garment workers, mostly women, have to face daily. Very low wages, labor and unsafe or unsanitary factories, lack of opportunities for career advancement, and sometimes also abuse. Little has changed for women in fashion despite decades of advocacy efforts and industry promises. Our guest today is Liz Haywood, joining us from Australia. Hello, Liz. Hello, thank you very much for having me. I'm happy to be here. Yeah, and so are we. So could you please tell our listeners who you are, where you are, and what you do? I'm Liz Haywood. I live in country Australia, and I'm a former fashion industry pattern maker who now makes zero-waste patterns and writes and educates on sewing, fashion, and zero-waste pattern cutting. So you spent 20 years in the fashion industry, including nine years in sewing departments. So how did you start with that, and how was that like? Well, I, I was a fashion student in 1990 and 91 where I trained as a pattern maker. And my training was much more manufacturing focused than fashion studies are now. And my very first job was at the very worst place I've ever worked. It was what's called a CMT factory, which stands for Cut, Make, Trim. We did the cutting, sewing and finishing of garments for fashion brands and they did the designs, patterns and samples. As a cutter, I would create a cutting layout on paper. The pattern pieces for the garment were on cardboard and I traced around them onto a long piece of paper which was the same width as the fabric. And there were about three or four other people who worked there. Uh, all the sewing was done by unregistered outworkers who were all Vietnamese. They would collect huge bundles of cut work and take it home and share it amongst their family to sew and then bring it all back, all smelling of cigarettes and Vietnamese food. We would press the clothes, we would put on buttons and buttonholes, invisibly hem them on our invisible hemming machine, put them on coat hangers with swing tags and dispatch. And were there sometimes any problems that occurred? I remember our boss, whose name was Vic, arguing with a Vietnamese man about pay. Vic wanted to pay them in fabric, which he happened to have lying around because he was short on cash. And the man said that his family could not eat fabric And sometimes men would come to the factory and ask to see him and he would run and hide in the women's toilets and we were forced to say he wasn't here. And some days he came late because he had to go to court. He was always trying to convince me and another girl to model bodysuits for him. We never did. Uh, we made into a joke at his, at his suggestion, but inside it felt like throwing up. And we were both 19 and he was probably about 40. He was slow to pay us. We got paid weekly in cash, which was very normal back then because we didn't have electronic banking. 
Most people got paid by cheque or cash. And if it was cash, it came in an envelope with a pay slip showing a summary of your hours and pay. But he was never ready with our pay at the end of the week. Sometimes we were hanging around at the factory for an hour or more waiting for him to send someone to the bank to get cash to pay us. Sometimes they sent me. Uh, so I worked here for 23 weeks, but stopped when I hadn't been paid for two weeks in a row. I went every day to the factory to try and get paid. And one day when I turned up, he'd done a moonlight flip. The big glass doors at the entrance had chains around the handles of the padlock. And when I looked through the glass, the place was empty. All the machines, tables and stock was gone to who knows where. But luckily, I worked in nicer factories after that. My next job was as a cutter at a swimwear factory, which was owned by a woman and only women worked there. Everyone was great and very skilled at their job. And uh, clothing factories can be very dirty places. Whenever fabric is cut or torn, it creates dust. And we had to clean weekly and there was a lot of dust and dirt. These are just some of my experiences in Australian factories. Uh, I cannot imagine, actually I probably can, conditions in factories in other countries. Uh, but I don't want to give the impression that working in, in a factory is, is all bad. There is something special about working together in a group of highly skilled and experienced people, which I really miss now. Thank you so much for giving us such a, yeah, such detailed impressions on your former work life. And I'm so sorry for all the bad experiences you had to go through. So you worked in the UK and in Australia. And which differences did you notice in these two different countries? Um, well, I did work in the UK for a while, uh, uh, but I mainly worked in comfortable studio environments which outsourced their manufacturing rather than in Australia where everything happened under the same roof. And in the UK, everyone is so wonderfully polite to one another. For example, they say, Excuse me, I'm so terribly sorry to interrupt. I can see you're in the middle of something, but could I possibly steal your time to look at this? Rather than, hey, what do you think of this? <laughs> yeah, I can imagine. I was working at a place in London making jacket patterns with other pattern makers, and I asked when we were going to start grading them for production. Grading is when we create all the sizes from just one pattern. Uh, they said, oh, no, we don't grade here. We send all our patterns out for grading to a grading specialist. Uh, but their patterns weren't computerised, they were only on cardboard, uh, so it wasn't like they didn't have the technology. And later I came across creative pattern makers and technical pattern makers. In my experience in Australia, the pattern department does all of this, patterns, fitting, grading, and sometimes even samples. And doing a range of jobs makes you more versatile, I think, and actually helps you do your own job better because you appreciate how it knocks on to other people's jobs. In Australia, clothing and textile workers are among the lowest paid in the nation. We're paid hourly in factories, but piece rates if working at home. And machinists have different levels of pay depending on their skills. For example, a sample machinist will earn more because they're making whole garments. Subcontracting and working at home is one area of the fashion industry where exploitation is really hard to track. Someone will contract work and then subcontract it to others for even less money. And when work is subcontracted, the people who sew are suddenly invisible. There's no control over their work conditions or what they're being paid. 
factories subcontract for various reasons. For example, sometimes they take on more work than they could do and they subcontract it so they can make their delivery deadlines. Our factory was an ethical business. They they paid their staff on properly and on time and they were good people. Mm-hmm. Um, so factories employ almost all women. The exceptions in my experience are that men are sometimes employed to cut denim because it takes strength and men sometimes do ancillary jobs such as moving pallets of fabric with a forklift, that kind of thing. But um, predominantly, it's uh, mostly, if not all, women. Yeah, thank you very much for this detailed insight. It's really interesting to get to know the work conditions in the fashion industry as a woman. And I bet that many listeners, just as me, didn't know before how these uh, conditions are. And I would like to open a discussion about general fashion ideas, like, for example, sustainable fashion in different countries. As you know, we are all from different um, regions of the world, and it's kind of interesting to get to know yeah, the different ideas of fashion in different countries. So Pauline, Jesse, Lina, if you want to add the ideas or perceptions of fashion of your countries, you can yeah, do it now. Well, I'm from Latvia and mm. uh, we have quite a lot of quote-unquote thrift shops, but sadly they're not Uh, like in the UK most of them are charity shops which I love it's such an amazing idea that like so many of them the money goes to different kinds of charities I really love that it's Mm -hmm. in Latvia I only know one charity shop like this sadly I wish there were more I wish it was like a more common thing uh, around the world Mm -hmm. Um, um, yeah I, I just like going to charity shops that's one of my favorite things to do and that's where I get a very big chunk of my wardrobe from yeah that's actually a very nice idea I really love sustainable fashion in my home university we have what is called clothing parties um, where we share our clothes for free like we exchange them you know you give a clothing like for example a jacket and you receive I don't know a trousers you can like choose from so many clothes and it's all for free and very sustainable and I really love that. Um, so yeah, uh, what about France? Pauline, if I may address you. Um, so from what I have like known or seen in France is that especially Paris or other big cities are very fashion oriented and I would like to ask you if you know anything about yeah fashion in France and like What, what do you want to share with us? Some like impressions, like anything you want to share? Well, I feel like it's changing for the best, but mm. well, there's like some little ateliers and stuff like that that are like a better fashion, more sustainable. But mm. in France, it's really easy to say it is made in France for nothing. Like, for example, if you have a a piece of clothing from China and you just sew one little thing just add the little details at the end in France you can say it is made in France it's really easy to lie and to not really be fair to the clients but we have a lot of thrift shops a lot of charity shops um, and we have many 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 more uh, than in the back back then like 10 years ago 
So yeah, and a lot of our shops in France start to propose um, resale line. So mm. there's a there's a part in the shops where you can get old clothes and not old, but like still wearable clothes. But yeah, like there's a little charity thrift shop part in some of the shops. I think sustainable fashion is very important and serious as the fashion industry alone is responsible for 2.1 billion tonnes of CO2 emissions each year, which is a gigantic amount. And I think that sustainable fashion is becoming a lot more popular than it was, um, especially with the rise of secondhand clothing um, apps such as Vinted and Depop. Like they have really gained popularity over the last few years. And I feel like a lot of people look on those platforms now if they want new clothes because it's cheaper and also you're not supporting the fast fashion yeah definitely and i'm so glad that people become more aware of this and it's sustainable it's kind of trendy now um so guys have you ever tried sewing because my mom does it sometimes but i've never tried it and i really want to one day i am actually really into sewing but mainly i sew accessories rather than clothes for now because i don't have much space in my studio Sadly, and I really want to, to get a mannequin first before I start mm. like making clothes. My mom's doing, but I'm not because I don't have the patience and the talent. <laughs> um, I don't have a lot of skills with sewing. Growing up, my granny um, is that like, incredible at sewing. Like she was always making things and like always making us clothes, fixing our clothes, like adjusting our clothes. Um, and before I moved away to university, she gave me a little sewing kit, which I think was really sweet. Um, but no, it's definitely some a skill I still need to practice, but it's such a useful skill. And I definitely want to be able to sew well when I have my own family. Yeah, same. So back to you, Liz, I would really like to ask you about the waste in fashion and more specifically the problems, maybe also health problems that you and your workers, your co-workers, sorry, um, needed to face daily. Um, yeah, if you want to elaborate on that a bit. Uh, firstly, I'd like to say that although waste in factories is considered normal, It's not something that the factory necessarily has control over. And people who work in factories hate waste. About 15% of the fabric used for a garment is thrown away as scraps. Sometimes it's a bit less than 15% and sometimes it's more. And some types of fabric create more waste. This waste is costed into the total cost of the garment. In the fashion industry, the responsibility to dispose of production textile waste is the factories. Because it's the factory's problem, there's little incentive for fashion brands to be concerned with it. And with offshore manufacturing, they won't even see it. Even with in-house manufacturing, the same issue was there, because our methods for making clothes patterns don't have fabric waste high on the agenda. Pattern pieces are made individually, without any thought for how they will fit together in the cutting layout. And zero waste wasn't on my radar when I worked in factories, but even if it was, it would have been impossible to do anything about. And we can talk more about that soon. 
In my own experience, even small factories generate a lot of waste. The factories I worked in had bins in different areas of the factory which got emptied daily or several times a day into a skip or bigger bins. And the big bins could hardly keep up. It was okay early on in the week, but by Friday they were overflowing and typically someone had to get in and jump on it. And it all went to landfill. It's probably still there. Out of all the factories I worked in, which is at least 10, only one sold their scraps and they only sold some of them. They sold them to a rag dealer who on-sold them to mechanic workshops, that kind of thing. So the scraps had to be about handkerchief size and cut into manageable pieces, like we weren't allowed to put in five metre long strips, that sort of thing. And they had to be cotton or high cotton content. In high volume factories situated in countries without waste management systems, textile waste is a big problem. There is also other waste made by factories. In Australia, fabric arrives with each roll individually wrapped in heavy duty plastic with zip ties at the end, and sometimes it's double wrapped in plastic. Sewing thread comes on plastic cones, and other items need to complete garments such as labels and zips and trims. They obviously arrive in packaging. Yeah, the daily waste of the fashion industry goes beyond imagination. It is estimated that 164 million square meters are being thrown away per day and it does not seem to end. Um, I can't even imagine how much that is in a year or even in a decade. And as you said, it's, it's not only bad for the environment, it is also very hard for the workers in that industry. Um, so. What made you get out of that industry in the end? And how did starting over completely independently feel like? My husband and I started a family. He grew up in the country and when we'd gotten married, he said that if we had children, he would like for us to go and live in the country because it's a good place to raise a family. So it was with a note of sadness, but not unhappiness that my time in fashion manufacturing ended but I'd had 20 years and done lots of interesting things. So I stayed at home with our children until they went to school and then I started thinking about what I might do. I had thought when I was younger that I would work in fashion forever and actually there really, actually there really wasn't anything else I wanted to do and I'd never considered that my circumstances would change so much. Jennifer, in my alternate life, I work in fashion in New York and I live in an apartment that's got champagne in the fridge. <laughs> <laughs> so back in Australia. So I worked as a sewing teacher for a while, teaching pop-up sewing classes, and I'd started writing a sewing book called The Dressmaker's Companion, so I finished doing that. I started writing a weekly blog called The Craft of Clothes. Please check it out. Uh, I wasn't phased by working for myself since I was freelance by the time I stopped working in fashion uh, and I like the variety and autonomy. So yeah, you are now an independent author of Zero Ways Pattern Cutting. And I would like to ask you to give an explanation or like a little insight in what that means specifically. Like what is Zero Ways Pattern Cutting? A zero Waste Pattern uses 100% of the fabric with no scraps or waste. The pattern pieces are designed to fit together like a giant jigsaw puzzle. Zero waste patterns address one of the hidden areas of waste in the fashion industry, which is pre-consumer textile waste. I was just going to ask, obviously, you've had quite a long 
um, journey in the fashion industry. Some of it hasn't been as good, but some of it has been. But you're still continuing to work in that industry. In the future, say in the next 30 years of the fashion industry, how do you see it going in terms of um, like fast fashion and um, landfill, stuff like that? Do you see that getting better or how do you see it going? Oh, I am prepared for this question. Here's my hot predictions. Okay. <laughs> number, one, number one, I think this generation of fashion students are going to be the change makers in fashion. They think in different ways. Number two, I think minimal waste is going to be the stepping stone to zero waste. And I think that technology is going to be the game changer for it. Number three, consumers are going to demand more from brands with regard to sustainability. And things that only a few brands are doing now is going to become normal in the future. Number four, resale could become bigger business than retail. Number five, tougher government legislation for garment labelling and transparency. This is already happening in France and in the EU. In my view, this can't happen quickly enough. Legislation is the only thing that is going to force change because clearly it isn't going to happen any other way. Uh, I do not think that free trade agreements are likely to be rolled back, but possibly bigger government incentives for local manufacturing, certainly in Australia. Yeah, let's hope that the fashion industry will change for the better in the future, especially in the work conditions. So Liz, which advice would you like to give our listeners? I would love to pass on some advice that I was given when I was 20, and that is spend your money wisely and be choosy about what you buy and, and your clothes don't have to be new clothes. Build a wardrobe of good quality clothes that you absolutely love and that you wear for a long time. If you don't sew, at least learn how to sew on a button and sew a hem. And years later, when I had small children and a tight budget and no time to shop, I still had a wardrobe of clothes that looked good. These are definitely very good advices. Thank you so much, Liz. Very helpful. Yeah, all I can say is that you are a really inspiring woman and you set an example for everyone who wants to leave a harmful business and wants to start over completely independently with a very peaceful and sustainable business instead. Thank you very much for having me. Pauline, you must learn how to sew, even yes, if it's I a button or a hem. Yeah, Sorry. I will. <laughs> you know, you Thank would be you. surprised at how many fashion designers can't sew at all, not even a button or a hem. All the best for your podcast and journalism studies. It's been such a pleasure. Thank you very much. We hope you liked this episode of International Sisters Helpline. Remember to check us out on our Instagram where you can interact with us and have the opportunity to be involved in future episodes. And subscribe to our newsletter if you want to hear more from us. That's all for now, guys. See you next episode. Bye. Bye.